Hey everyone, this is Leela Sinha. Welcome to Power Pivot, the podcast version two. This is where we talk about business, leadership, ethics, community, and the way it all fits together. I'm glad you're here. Hi everyone, and thanks for tuning in. I am feeling uncommonly mellow today, and uh, and that's a weird feeling, and I don't usually sit down to record when I'm feeling mellow, because I have to admit, I have a little fear that you won't be as interested or you won't feel as engaged or you won't think that um, that this is as worth your time if I'm not um, kind of pitched up here and really excited. And, and, and I am, I'm still excited. Um, but, but intensives, we go through these phases of go and then these phases of stop. And I've learned that if I try to fight that cycle, nothing good comes of it. Like the stuff I produce is just not great because it's, it's out of alignment of where I am. And, uh, and so I'm trying an experiment today and I'm bringing you along for the ride because I'm going to talk about stuff, even though I'm not in that hyped up, super energetic place right now. Um, I figure the world is full of a lot of hyped up energy and maybe it's okay for you to come with me on these um, more mellow moments too. So this is going to be a slightly longer episode. We're not sticking to five minutes and um, and I'm going to uh, allow you into this softer, more thoughtful space that I sometimes occupy. This feels like a more private space to me. And I think that's true for a lot of intensives that we're very comfortable kind of projecting that thing that often people think of as extroversion. I was just on a Facebook Live the other day with um, Grace Edison, who is fantastic. By the way, um, if you're looking for support with sales, you should absolutely get in touch with her. Also, if you're just looking for a fantastic person, you should just get in touch with her. Um, she lives and works out of uh, rural British Columbia. And uh, and she has the most interesting, interesting life. And I mean that in all the good and bad ways. Um, but she has made something fabulous out of it. So anyway, I was on this, um, having this conversation with Grace, and we were talking about introversion and extroversion. And uh, we were both really uncharacteristically mellow. And And she was talking about how how people are often like down on extroverts. They're like telling extroverts that they have to hush and step back so that um, introverts can have more space in a space. And uh, and she kind of one of the questions she asked me was what I think of that, and is it her responsibility to make that space? And I said, well, who are you in the space, right? What is your leadership role in the space? Are you just a participant? I mean, just quote unquote participation is very important, but are you a participant? Are you um, carrying some privilege vis a vis the other people in the room, or are you the facilitator? Because each one of those. Occupying each one of those spaces requires a different thing from you as a as a person um, in that role, and and then I was thinking about then I was thinking about how um, how we get told we're not supposed to be proud of ourselves. We're not supposed to you know pretty is as pretty does, and we shouldn't we shouldn't claim space. We shouldn't be out and loud and proud. And how especially in queer spaces and in um, a lot of people of color spaces, right? We've had to, um, we've had to teach ourselves and encourage each other to take up that space that we've been taught not to take up. Um, 
I know that it's true in Black and Indigenous spaces. It's also true in South Asian spaces. I'm projecting that it's also true in other spaces that are occupied by other communities of color. And we see some of that on TikTok in places where people are able to occupy and define their own stage, their own way of sharing who they are and what they do. And then I was thinking about my clothes (laughs) because um, I have gone through a long period of not really... Um, not really wanting to call attention to myself visually for a variety of reasons. And recently I've started to come out of that only as I've started to have the capacity to make clothes for myself because part of what I'm discovering is that I didn't want to wear clothes and call attention to myself in clothes that I didn't feel comfortable in, that I didn't feel like were representative of me, myself, my values, um, how I want to look, like none of that. And of course, being me, being an intensive um, what I want is a little bit outside the norm. It's a little bit different from what everybody else wants. And in the case of my clothes, that means that I'm wearing a combination of 18th century um, menswear mostly that I'm making myself. And I have been through a months and months long project. I'm really proud of myself actually, because ordinarily when I end up stuck on a project, I end up shelving it and I walk away. And in this case, I um I have been working on this on this um fitted banyan so there are two kinds of banyans fitted and unfitted and I've been working on a fitted banyan which is basically just a glorified very elegant bathrobe for months trying to get this pattern from what it was um I, I started with a a pattern derived from an extant garment um in the LA County Museum of Art um all the way to a pattern that fits me, which looks tremendously different from the original pattern. I don't know if the original pattern was made for a boy or if the original piece was uh, made for a very small man, but it was certainly not made for somebody of my size, and I've had to scale a lot of it up in order to get it to where I need it to be. But scaling it up is not as simple as adding inches around the edges. You end up having to readjust the entire pattern, which is what I've been learning. So I've learned a lot. But the reason that I'm I've persisted. I've actually persisted. I've stayed with it because it has novelty, because it's this giant like three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle, because it uses parts of my brain that I don't get to use um, in the same way in my work. But I do use those parts in my work, right? If you've ever worked with me or if you're familiar with my work, you know that I will take an existing system or an existing structure and restructure it to fit the people or the institution that's using it. I will, rather than saying, well, you have to fit into this box, I'll say, well, let's build a different container. A box isn't even the right thing. We shouldn't even be using cardboard. We should be using wood, and it shouldn't be six-sided. It should have you know, 17 sides because that would accommodate you better. And next thing you know, we have a completely different kind of containing structure that fits the institution that needs it, that supports the institution that needs it. Maybe we leave the top off so the institution can continue to grow. And I'm only able to do that because I have finally, in my late 40s, come to a place where I'm willing to be out and proud, not just about all of the identity pieces that um, we've had to be uh, politically and socially in order to um, keep and, and advance human rights, but also out and proud about what I do and what goes on in my head. I had this really interesting experience when I was growing up that I kept having original ideas. And um, and I I kept trying to put them forth as as legitimate thoughts. And people kept telling me in academia, this is very common. People kept telling me, 
over and over. Well, you have to come up with, um, you have to come up with with a source. This has to have come from somewhere. You got to cite somebody. And I said, but there is no source. I came up with this, and they essentially told me that my ideas didn't count. That the only ideas that counted were ideas that came from external sources. And so, if I couldn't find somebody else having already said it then I couldn't put it in my paper, then I couldn't write it down anywhere, then I couldn't build on it. And I found this both insulting and frustrating. And as I got older and found out exactly how old Emerson and Thoreau were when they wrote some of their most famous works and, um, and you know, institutions that I was studying and really elevated Emerson and Thoreau and, and their peers and contemporaries, as I started to realize that um, quite young white men had been allowed to have original thoughts for a very long time and that we base a lot of our our current thinking on their thinking from when they were like in their late teens or early 20s, I became really clear that I was not going to be constrained by the limits of academia. And I actually think that's when the seeds of my resistance to academic structures started. So I continued on. I mean, I have a graduate degree, but my graduate degree is a Master's of Divinity, which is a practicing degree. It's a it's a degree of praxis um, in the same way that an MD is a degree of practice, in the same way that um, a, a JD is a degree of practice, right? There are two different kinds of graduate degrees. There are degrees that are more theoretical and degrees that are really about how do you practice this thing you've learned? How do you make it into something tangible and tactical? in the world. And I chose to go that route. I ended up with a master's degree because that's, it's not actually the last degree you can get anymore. You can get a doctor of ministry, but the master's degree is considered complete. It's, it's the most degree you need to do ministry work in the world. And, um, and so I got this master's degree, which is a, it's a very, it's like an MSW. It's like three years plus field work kind of situation. So by the time you are fully accredited and degreed, you've done four years of work. Um, but because of the vagaries of our uh, academic system, you only have a master's. Um, but I decided to get a master's degree that was not an academic degree. And I decided not to get, say, a THD, which is a doctorate of theology or a PhD um, in my field, partially because I was interested in practical applications. I was interested in taking what we were doing and doing it in the world. I had no idea when I graduated with my MD that I was, MDiv, that I was going to leave um, the institutional church as my, as the primary container of my work and that I was going to go out into the world and instead do this, um, do this very fusion kind of work, right? Where I, where I take some of the principles of, you know, goodness in the world with the ideals of being good and being good for the world. And I bring them into the business context and that kind of interdisciplinarity, um, was very new when I was in, in undergraduate and I was doing some similar things there. And um, I really shouldn't, I guess, be as surprised as I am that I ended up where I am doing what I do. But the only reason that I'm able to to go out in the world and say this this mashup of of um, theory and philosophy and belief and and world transformation is relevant in the business world 
it's important in the business world. It's what we need to be doing in the business world. The only reason that I'm able to do that and the only reason that I'm able to say these things that I know I need are also things that I am noticing other people need. And when we provide those things for people like us, what happens? We become better. All of us, our institutions, us as individuals, the other people we're interacting with, everything gets better when we do this. So we're making the world a better place by making space for intensives, by carrying that intensiveness forward, and by being out and loud and proud as intensives. As intensives. The only reason I can do that is because I am finally at this place where I'm willing to say, this version of the world that I'm imagining has legitimacy. It it deserves to take up space. It deserves to be on the page. It deserves to be in the front of the room. It deserves to be heard and seen and understood and perceived and grasped in all the ways that people interact with ideas because it's not just a theory that has no impact. It's it, it's a seed. It's a seed of what could be if we all get together and do it. And we have to be able to be proud. We have to be able to be loud. And if I could go back and tell ninth grade me who wanted to do original research on the um, children's anti-Nazi resistance movement in Scandinavia, (laughs) that me trying to chase down sources for a ninth grade paper would lead me eventually to a place where I had the confidence and the audacity to write a book without an academic degree behind it. I have a degree, but it's not a degree that, that most people would consider qualifies me to write that book. But the book needed to be written, and the ideas are valid and validated in the real world by people like you and me. And that's why that book had to exist, regardless of whether or not I had a PhD after my name. My father has a doctorate. And I thought for years that I couldn't legitimately occupy intellectual space without one. And now I know better. And now I know that there are lots of ways of knowing, that academia upholds some of those ways of knowing, but not all of them. And that we can validate ourselves and each other. We validate ourselves and each other, and that's why this work is important. Because everybody's way of being needs space. That doesn't mean that you get to harm other people with your way of being, but it does mean that there are spaces and needs to find the ways that we can all be in our own ways of being and bring what we have to bring and give what we have to give without being told that we're wrong, without squishing ourselves and without harming others. This was a lot easier in the times and places before the internet because now if I'm having a thought I might sit down and write about it first, like privately, offline, in a journal, somewhere. But I might just sit down and write a public post, or I might just sit down and record a podcast episode and put my ideas right out there without 
without doing a lot of digestion. And that's a legitimate way of telling stories. That's a legitimate way of transmitting ideas and knowledge. There's not necessarily a requirement to refine and refine and refine. Refining is one method, but it's not the only method. And sometimes when I refine my stuff too much, it loses its energy. And so I have to come to this space willing to be a little bit less refined, willing to carry forward a rough draft in order to carry forward the energy that comes with that rough draft. And the advantage of that is that when I bring a rough draft, I'm more open to friendly amendments. I'm more open to other people's ideas. It's still soft. It's still forming. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just needs to get out there so it can be a seed. So it can be a pile of seeds. So it can be a handful of seeds scattered on the ground. And someone somewhere will pick up one of those seeds and make something of it. And that's what's most important. Of course, this is capitalism, so it's also important that I figure out how to get credit, I figure out how to occupy public space, that I figure out how to hold my presence as one of the presences in the discourse as it proceeds, and to interact with the results of my own ideas, to engage, to be engaged, to be credited, and and to profit, to benefit from the results of my ideas. All of that is important. And one of the joys of this immediate publication social media world is that we can bring partially formed rough draft wet clay to the table. And then we can find out what happens when it's not just us in isolation. Sometimes we need isolation. Sometimes we need privacy. Sometimes we need cogitation. Sometimes we need rumination, but we don't have to do that all the time. We can mix it. It's a tool. Those are all tools, and we have access to all these different tools. When clergy used to write sermons that were supposed to be all-day services, and I mean all-day, or when they still do, probably, I don't know, but when they used to, they would just be writing alone. It was them and a whole bunch of parchment and a quill pen and a cup of tea and a break for lunch until they had like four or five hours worth of writing to read. And we don't have to do that anymore. Not only can we consult books, which they could consult, whatever they had in their library, whatever their next door neighbor had in their library, whatever the church had in its library, but not only can we consult texts, we can also consult people, living people with living experience. And that's what makes it possible for us to be ourselves because we don't have to represent everybody. I can represent myself and other people like me. And the minute somebody feels like I don't represent them anymore, that's cool. That's all right. I don't have to represent everybody. We don't have one spokesperson for this and one spokesperson for that, one representative of this and one representative of that. We have all these examples of all these kinds of ways of being and all these people and all these presences. But the only way that that amalgamation of experience is accurate is if a lot of us get out there and occupy space that we've been told we shouldn't occupy for some reason or other. Now, I'm an introvert. I'm not an extrovert, but I am an intensive. 
And so often I get out there and I occupy a lot of space with really big ideas. That's part of my role in the world. That's not everybody's job. And that's okay too. Some people are not doing that. Some people are, are collating, they're aggregating, they're weaving together. And that's also important. If there's nothing that anybody learns from my work except that we can value everybody, we can value what all the people bring to the table, we can value the loud voices and the quiet voices, we can value the big movements and the small movements, we can value the, the cacophony and the silence, we can value the in-breath and the out-breath, the tides rise and the tides fall the salty and the sweet. And it's everything together that allows us to know ourselves well enough to move forward. When I'm not wearing 18th century clothes that I made myself, I'm wearing one of two things. Either I'm wearing saris which I typically drape in ways that are slightly unconventional to suit me because they're incredibly flexible garments. Or I'm wearing the default uniform that I fell back on, which is a black V-neck t-shirt and this single pair of pandemic pants. I keep wanting to tell the story of getting so annoyed with pants that I stopped wearing any other pairs of pants and how that led to my clothing being mostly hand-sewn or draped. Um, But I do also have this fallback position of pandemic pants. At some point, I will actually put the whole story up on the YouTube. But the funny thing about having a neutral, a default, a thing I can fall back on, is that it provides me a place to rest It provides me a place to go when my energy isn't high, when I'm not prepared to even be loud about myself in public, when I'm in that cogitation, that internal space, and I just just want to be in there. There may have been a time in this world where I could have worn these clothes quietly and gone about my day and nobody would have noticed, but that was a number of hundreds of years ago and that time was terrible in a lot of other ways, so let's not go back there. So when I need to get dressed, when I need to go out in public, when I need to present myself on social media even, I get to decide how I'm going to bring all of myself in that moment. Sometimes it's bright colors, flowing silks, exotic, imported, rich, delightful, sensual stuff. Sometimes it's sometimes it's flamboyant in a completely different way. And I'm fully cognizant of the negative connotations of both flamboyant and exotic. And 
And I'm aware that that is part of what I'm carrying with me into the space, that some people will have those thoughts, those ideas, those overtones, those undertones when they see me in those clothes. And sometimes that's not what I want. Sometimes I want to be absolutely unremarkable. Sometimes I want the words or the art that I'm making to be front and center, the only thing that people notice. And if that's what I want, then I put on a black V-neck t-shirt and a pair of pandemic pants. So I'm not saying that you have to go out there and be shiny all the time, but I am also saying that you do not have to not, no matter what anybody has told you. This has been Power Pivot, the podcast. I'm your host, Leela Sinha. Thank you for listening. I offer gratitude for the earth and sky and the support and care of many who cross my path. Our post-production assistance is provided by William Jameson, and you can find him at jamesonav.net. You can find more of me and my work, including leadership consulting and keynotes, at intensiveinstitute.com.